This is Keywords and I'm Zoe Cummins. This series brings together stories, sounds and words that you have sent us, each week guided by a keyword and recorded by you. We have work by established and emerging writers, sound artists and poets. We have voice recordings and calls. Coming up in this programme, Lindsay May, Rachel Andrews, Roisin O'Donnell, Emer McBride, Kerry Morgan and Kieran McGrath. This week's keyword, things left unsaid. I've been making a list of things you don't need to say out loud. Come to bed eyes. Why not? We have time. Eyebrow raising, questioning. Eye rolling, enough of that. Cut throat, jazz hands, elbow bump. Saying shh with just your finger. Digi speak. A dictionary of emojis. Face palm. Namaste. LOL. Two fingers. Thumbs up. Thumbs down. 3,304 symbols to say without saying. Eye gaze. Body language. Articulate. Pandiculate. Gesticulate. Your face. 43 muscles make 10,000 gestures. All reflexes. Reflections of ourselves. Writer Rachel Andrews has written about our past selves, past friendships, those connections we no longer have. I missed a phone call the other day. It came from someone I hadn't heard from in a long while. It came from someone to whom I had once been close. It came from someone I thought no longer wanted to know. When all of this happened, and no longer able to see anyone in person, I got on the phone. I sent texts and WhatsApp messages. How are you? What is happening? Is everything okay? Then I contacted those I hadn't been in touch with for a much longer time. I rooted out old email addresses. Are you and your loved ones safe? I asked. I'm thinking of you at this time. Some of the addresses were too old. Silence echoed back at me across the transom, but others responded. We are okay, thank you. Strange times. Stay safe. We'll return to Rachel Andrews shortly to find out if she made contact with her old friend. But as she makes those calls, another woman is deciding if there's anything more to say in her relationship. For Janie, in Lindsay May's story, the world has taken on a new colour. When purple water poured from the kitchen tap, Janie knew the end of the world had come. As it splashed, dark and beautiful, into the plastic basin, Janie's mind sparked into life. Her eyelids fluttered and her hand shot out to turn off the tap. In the silence that followed, everything seemed normal. The piles of dishes waiting to be washed were still stacked high. The spots of mould Dave kept promising to do something about hadn't changed. And the photos on the fridge had their usual smug smiles. Janie listened wondering if anyone else had noticed. She could hear no sirens, no screams, a cautious arm, a swift twist, and the tap went on again. It was still purple. As one of the first to know, Janie felt a great sense of responsibility and also a deep, bubbling excitement. There had been other signs, plenty of them. Floods, volcanoes, heat waves, breakouts of this, dangers of that, it had been coming and coming. 
and they'd all been so slow to realise it. To believe. Janie's boyfriend is just about to come home. You'll meet him shortly. I wonder if he'll have seen the signs too and whether it'll clarify things. Is it true that in a crisis we see who we really are? For Rachel Andrews, it spotlights the weaknesses in what we do or say or don't say. But it might expose our tenderness too. There's a lot of shouting at the moment. The stillness on the streets amplifies the noise online. I'm not sure we are communicating any better now than we ever have. The arguments, the divisions, the witty put-downs. Those who annoyed us four weeks ago are those who continue to annoy us now. Meantime, we hold alongside us those we have always adored. Is there any way we should speak differently in a pandemic? Is there anything we should say now, by phone, over Zoom, that needs to be exposed to the light? The longer I go on, the more I have come to believe in the cracks and the gaps, in the waiting and the silence, in those moments when we say nothing, when we let attention emerge and hang in the air until it too passes. I wonder what the person who called me wanted to speak about. They didn't ring back and they didn't leave a message. I didn't call back either. I just didn't know what to say. The tension hasn't passed yet though in Lindsay May's story. We left Janie mid-thought in her kitchen, staring at purple water, mulling over the strange signs of the past few weeks. The world was ending and soon everyone would be crying in each other's arms apologising for it all. Dave might also apologise. He might even cry. Janie stood in her kitchen and thought about Dave crying and apologising. She found her rucksack under the bed. On the windowsill there sat a carefully poured glass of the purple water. The sun streamed in and a violet rectangle fell over Janie as she packed. She could hear the TV as she looked for things to take. There'd be nothing on the news. No emergency reports, yet. The door snicked open as she was searching the penny jar for stray pound coins. Dave was home early. It seemed the panic had finally started. Hey Janie, he called. Hey Janie, have you turned the tap on yet? She said nothing, her fingers in the cold, coppery grasp of the coins. It's only purple. Some weirdo on the waterboard got fired, chucked a bunch of chemicals in it. She could hear him stripping off his coat dropping his keys in the basket. Her breath was a balloon in her chest, stretched tight and seconds from popping. The face that appeared round the edge of the bedroom door was gleeful. Hey, he said. What's this? Where are you going? Janie looked away from her husband and towards the gently rippling glass of water with its purple glow. Nowhere, she said. There's something about the tone of her voice and the way Janie says nowhere. I'm unsure if she'll go or if she'll just leave it all unsaid and stay. In Kerry Morgan's poem, we journey across a city, Montreal. We watch the passers-by, enjoy the park, pastries, ice cream, the music of the city. In it, Kerry quotes from Nicole Brassard's novel, French Kiss, where desire is not spoken, but expressed with a lingering kiss. 
Avenue Bernard. Poursuite du baiser. Morgan's with Gabin in a misty le Havre. I make my way along Parc, pause at Coco Local, buy a slice of red velvet to go. The dusky sponge scents my bag. Too lethargic to walk, I hop on bus 80, give up my seat two stops on. The beautiful woman stands so tall in her overcoat, I don't notice at first that she's pregnant. Off a Bernard, I hit Chesky's Verruglach. Gifts for a friend, I sneak one. I swim at Park Kennedy before getting coffee. Count the clouds. Tiptoeing over the blistering poolside, water drips at my nape. Montréal transpire. Showering in shadow, I look out for blue. Cerulean, sapphire, sax. Eyes that are violet, azure. Mauved. Mishearing my name, the waitress writes a new one. A metamorphosis or alchemy which sees me moving through the city in the wake of Elle, the fantastical woman with indigo hair. It's too hot to sleep. Let's go to the park, tango in the gathering gloom. The bridge glows in twilight as couples step in time. Hiro, Ocho, Cortado. We'll eat raspberry cones on the bench outside Bilboque. Sip sangria at souvenir. We call supper in a snowstorm, the soothing sauce and La Moulerie's slick, crisp fries. Rufus Wainwright was singing that night at the theatre where we saw Miller play Albertine. We like gasping like carp on the sprung floor on Bloomfield, fans slowly spinning damp air. Shoulders aligned, I'll follow your lead if you follow mine. Ta bouche ouverte la mienne, your tongue in my mouth, again. Kiss me again. In Roisin O'Donnell's No Fury, it's summer solstice in rural Meath. A young woman is asked to lend her wedding veil to an ex-lover's fiancé. In this story, there are unspoken truths in a wounded heart and some sparks of good old-fashioned magic. Katie, a girl from church, Mam said. I don't suppose she could borrow your wedding veil, Aveen. She's getting married to a lovely lad. Whirlwind romance, shoestring wedding. So romantic. Sean Conway is his name. I stared, waiting for Mum to make the connection. When she didn't, I said yes. Sean Conway... Your bride-to-be can borrow my wedding veil. But what you'll never know is that I doused the veil in oil of nightshade, a curse I read about on traditionalirishwitchery.com. My mum frowned, watching me at the kitchen sink. Aveen, that's not your veil. I'm cleaning it, I said, and I sat out on the patio long into the white stretch of late June evening, watching swallows dive. Nightshade is said to poison the passion out of any romance, making climax impossible, driving lovers to embarrassment and eventual madness. The nightshade dried out overnight, and a few days later I took the veil up to the hill of Tara. Midsummer solstice, the hill was hopping with new age caravans and pagan bonfires. 
a druid with long blue dreadlocks held the veil close to her face and muttered, Ten euros worth of words, guaranteed to make love flee. We're going to pause in Roisin O'Donnell's story as the mischievous Avian meets a witch on the hill of Tara and sets about cursing the wedding veil. Are we having a good time? Are we ready to witness a wedding? Right now, we're going to a real wedding across the ancient plains of Meath on another hill, the Hill of Slain. Oh, the wedding. Well, I tell you, doesn't every Irish person just love a wedding, you know? <laughs> Let's face it. And it'll be stunning. And it'll be very moving, as long as we don't all start bawling. We'll be fine. A few years ago, a couple I know got married in a public wedding in front of thousands of people on the Hill of Slain in a hand-fasting ceremony by a high priestess. This is no ordinary wedding. This is an ancient Celtic wedding where two people will be hand-fasted in front of all of you. Well, well, I'm a witch. Um, I came into witchcraft 12 years ago and I've been a, a practicing priestess ever since. And it's a, it's a very in-depth system of training that you have to go through over quite a long period of time and you're always learning and you're always developing. It's a spiritual path. The witch in Roisin O'Donnell's story doesn't seem quite as kind or benign. But then again, neither does the main character. Back to the Hill of Tara, where the witch is getting the measure of Avine. She studied me closely, taken in my post-pregnancy belly and the red mark left by my removed wedding ring. I liked her lack of questions. After having the veil cursed on the Hill of Tara at solstice night, I'll admit I was on a bit of a roll. So I went online again and found out that laburnum juice is said to invoke clarity and reason, the ultimate enemies of love. On the back lawn, chandeliers of lemon blossom hung within reach. I boiled a handful, but found that laburnum, while it was promised to be transparent and odourless, was neither. It came out pale yellow and reeked like your old aftershave. An uncomfortable smell that put me in a funny mood and reminded me, Sean, of how you always broke up with me after sex. There would be the usual ghosting, followed by some text message about how you just couldn't handle this at the moment. Remembering this made me really livid. On a surge of inspiration, I took the veil to the fairy ring up past the O'Brien home place and laid it in the foxglove dotted glen. A breezy day with grey clouds racing. I had my three daughters with me, but I made them wait in the daisy field outside the ring of gnarled witch finger trees. Why is it so difficult to say the appropriate words? Why does love in its wake leave such venom? I tied the veil between two trees, and as I watched it twist and snake, I thought of all the compassionate things I should be saying. How lovely for you, Sean, that you've sorted out your issues. How wonderful that you've found someone to share your life with. I spat in the mossy undergrowth of clover, roots and saxifrage. The trees were loud in the fairy glen, my daughters calling me, Mammy, are you done? 
I tore the veil down from the branches, trailing ivory sinews. And that's about all I had time for, before Mum texted, Avine, love, sorry to pester. I know you're busy with the kids, but I don't suppose you have that veil for Katie. The wedding is next week. You have freely decided to commit yourselves to each other in a close and continuing relationship. We begin by reaffirming the sacred ground on which we stand. I know everyone's hands are probably quite cold now, so if everyone could please hold hands and repeat after me. When a friend takes the hand of a friend, the circle is cast. Beautiful. So, Sean, I don't know what your sweet girl bride will make of the mottled, ripped and mildewed looking shroud which I wrapped in cerise tissue paper and popped in a Brian Thomas bag. I quite like the look of it. My veil now looks so tactile, like a weather-worn fishing net that has tackled Atlantic storms and hauled its share of mackerel and tuna from the deeps. Yet, far from nautical, its pong reminds me of moulding summer grass piles and solstice bonfires of my childhood. I imagine unspoken hurts accumulating like the rings inside a tree, my veil sawing through with sawdust flying. It's quite a transformation, and I've always had that typical Irish half-trust in an old-fashioned spatter of magic. Still, it has to be said that if I'd been able to get my hands on an appropriate nerve agent, you and your fiancé would be in some serious trouble. Roisin O'Donnell's No Fury and the dangers of not saying things that need to be said. Very clear there. At the actual wedding on the Hill of Slain, the words come a little easier. But we know before all these witnesses here tonight and before the ancestors, you have made the commitment to each other and through the hand fasting, the vows that you have made and the exchange of rings, I now declare that you are married. You may kiss the bride. They make saying I do in front of thousands of people seem easy. I doubt it is though. So many people have postponed their weddings this year. I hope those words don't stay unsaid for too long. Other times we find it difficult to express exactly what we want to say. Instead, we say things with actions or objects, like Kieran McGrath. In my bedroom there's a radiator that's festooned with fridge magnets. My fridge has a wooden covering, so I can't stick them there. And these fridge magnets are all from places I've been. Just various travellings I pick them up, but these ones are actually the cast-offs, the spurs. When I go 
traveling and buy these magnets, souvenirs. I buy them mostly for my parents. And when I come home, they get first pick. So their fridge, which doesn't have a wooden covering, has way more magnets from way more places. And part of it's the reason I do it is a way to think about other people while I'm there. But also it's that the opportunity I have to travel, a lot of the opportunities I have in life are down to my parents and all the support and help they gave me through my life. And when Kieran sent this audio to Keywords a couple of weeks ago, you could hear the emotion in his voice for his cocooning parents. I found it very moving. Since sending us this, Kieran's father John died very suddenly and unexpectedly last Sunday. This makes this tribute even more meaningful. Kieran wanted us to include this piece in Keywords in spite of the strangeness of the circumstances. You can talk to your parents and tell them you love them and but it's sometimes hard to have conversations where you express everything you owe them because, well, at the root maybe you do owe them everything. So I give them fridge magnets instead to point out that, well, the reason I have these opportunities is because of them and it's the only way I can say it. I think you'll agree that their words are sometimes unspoken. They are received and understood. Walking away from a conversation, it's easy to think of what you might have said, what you should have said. What people call staircase wit. The perfect phrase coming out, but the moment has long since passed. They've moved on. Relationships come and go. Sometimes you think, what have I just said yes or no? In writer Emer McBride's story, The Neurosurgeon's Revenge, it takes years to get the answer. In it, we meet two people who used to know each other. Their paths have crossed at a medical conference. A phrenologist couldn't have read more than she did while touching his head from behind. Stippled, where hair had been shorn, then shaved. Smooth, where follicles had expired by themselves. Rat-coloured once, but luxuriant. She had never seen his neck. But there, upstairs from the conference hall and like the rest of his bare body, it was. Every bit as real it surely must have been then. You've a big head, she says, and he only laughs because the statement is in every way true. Although he's keen for her to get on with the disrobing on this unexpected occasion of a hotel hosting both their symposiums, there were other things she wanted to do. One was to carefully remember, while the other was to touch the change on his head. He wasn't self-conscious about going bold. It suits me, he says, and so it does. 
but everything suits him and always has, or so it seemed back then. You are a little fucker, she says, to which he adds, you are a little fucker yourself. Yes, I suppose I was. The real problem, though, was that I thought, underneath all that, you were just like me. I was half like you, he says, interrogating her thigh. The main difference being, I was a lazy bastard, and you never forgave me for that. She remembers wanting him to kiss her, and with all the maddened desire that a life in medicine has made her forget. In youth, they'd gotten on famously, sat across from each other in history and biology. He wasn't clever like her, but his bronco laugh and leather jacket had a certain charm of their own. And she was charmed, then as now. So, where have you been all my life since? Deeply regretting not doing this, he says, and doing her brass, the past, hurt inside her chest, begins to celebrate. She would kiss him some more, she can't concentrate for the riverbeds of ridges on his bald head. Back then, she wouldn't have guessed they were there. Can life have forced them to appear? Well, that doesn't seem quite right. He was never one for discomfort. That much she remembers clearly as her body sings away, down to the depths of him. No, wrong again. He was the loveliest of shallows, if only she'd realized then, and she had not. Sure as she'd ever been of anything that Friday disco night that he would ask her to dance, then would ask her round the back, up the alley steps into the dark convent path where all those sisters breathing out and in would get to watch while he gave her a good hard kissing. That's what she'd imagined, the healthy two of them, offering an impassioned distraction from the memento mores of nuns. What matter though, now she has him fast between her legs, that his emissary had stood there in the disco light instead saying, Jimmy really likes you, but everyone else thinks you're weird. So he says, sorry, but he can't ask you to dance. Funny how, Jimmy now, when 20 years too late, gives her his whole body and is so grateful that she'll take it. It's a fair and free exchange, or so she pretends. We're all adults here, is the assumption extended. Except inside her, which knows full well what it is she truly does, feeds the body of this man to the 16-year-old who wanted there for you, and this for you, every bit of him. And once the teenagers devoured her meal, the woman of 37 says, Off you go, Jimmy. Before any real doctors guess, I've had some quack homeopath in here. That's it for this episode of Keywords. I'm off to make another list of things I should say and why. Next week's keyword is light. Keywords is a new normal culture production and is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sound and Vision Fund.